it is very moving and impressive to see so many of Ukraine's people responding courageously to the Russian invasion. A man fleeing with his children because he knows that the Russian military raises conurbations. A woman leaving her children at the border to return to a falling city because her mother is there dying. Expats returning to their homes to fight. And it's impressive because for all the suffering and increasing amounts of death and out and out tragedy, there is a sense of light in the descended darkness, echoes of hope that don't fade away. And it made me ask myself, what am I seeing when I detect something so resilient, so strong for all the oppression? And it made me think about what's talked about now, which is freedom. People are fighting for their freedoms. People don't want to lose hard-won freedoms. And in Western Europe, where freedom is taken for granted, we're reminded again to ask, what is this freedom that we feel we breathe quite as naturally as the air? It becomes doubly important when you not only see people losing their freedoms, paying for their restoration with their lives, but also when you wonder whether we too in Western Europe will be faced with war. We're certainly menaced by the spectre of war already and have to ask, what would I sacrifice to keep it? What fear would I be prepared to undergo? Which leads to this question of what is freedom? And Isaiah Berlin's well-known distinction offers a way in here. There is on the one hand, he said, freedom from, and on the other hand, freedom for. And freedom from is the kind of freedom that has underwritten much of the liberty of the West. It's essentially the freedom from constraint, from restraint, so that you can live your life as freely as possible from state interference or ideological shaping. And it's good, but it feels vulnerable because it tends to treat us in our self-determination as selves, and so always presents the possibility that our freedoms might compete, even become obstructions to one another. And so you have the culture wars. It invites you therefore to think not just about freedom from, but freedom for. What is all this freedom for? And again, the West has a good answer to that. It's the freedom to be with whom you love. It's the freedom to pursue your way of life. It's the freedom to critique who you will and to champion who you will. But the crisis in Ukraine asks about that too, because freedom for 
is good, but is it worth the ultimate price? A question that seems less clear when in a consumer society, freedom for often devolves into the freedom to consume. Consuming is often good, but is it freedom just to consume? That doesn't seem quite enough when you might be asked to pay for this freedom with your life or the life of those whom you love. Not least because then you won't be there to enjoy that freedom. They won't be there to enjoy that freedom. And so it presses for a kind of freedom beyond freedom from and freedom for, which is referred to as freedom to. And this is the freedom always and everywhere to align with what is good, beautiful and true. It's an inner freedom that no oppressor can actually take away, even though they might welly, and doesn't actually stand or fall on whether it's fulfilled or gratified. It's the freedom always to ask what's good. It's the freedom always to turn towards the other. It's the freedom to learn to trust that love is greater than any amount of hate. Because of these qualities, it's a spiritual kind of freedom that's well known in Russian literature. The brothers Karamazov contains the famous scene when Ivan, one of the brothers, tells a story about the Grand Inquisitor who was one day visited by Jesus. And the Grand Inquisitor tells Jesus that people don't want the freedom to align with what's good, beautiful and true that Jesus had brought because they want the kind of freedom that just secures their daily bread, that brings safety and a roof over their head, that amuses and entertains and fills life up. They don't want this freedom to align with inner goods because that brings fear, the fear of freedom, as it's also being called because it might ask your all. And Jesus' reply is equally famous to the Grand Inquisitor's protests. In fact, the Grand Inquisitor had rehearsed precisely the temptations that Jesus faced in the wilderness to turn the stones into bread and so seemingly magic a kind of freedom into life. When Jesus just kisses the Grand Inquisitor and shows that this inner freedom is in him to stand alongside what's good, not just try and appease people. And I think that's what we're seeing when in the midst of the darkness we catches, catch glimpses of light, when for all the undoubted suffering and death and horror which you wonder whether you would be able to stomach were it happening right here, echoes with sounds of hope and with scenes of beauty, costly beauty, but nonetheless speak of these spiritual qualities, this transcendent sense, which is undying, which is eternal, 
it's the freedom valued in the wisdom traditions, in spiritual traditions. Socrates, for example, said that he must drink the hemlock and die, condemned by the Athenian Democrats, because his soul and its freedom was more important than his body. And moreover, the soul of his city was more important. And so he would keep the flame of truth alight in his death. So as we hope and pray for peace and try to stay looking and learning from the horror and the suffering, those of us who look on rather than are in the midst, maybe this uh, moment to be challenged again to ask what this freedom that we enjoy is about and to align ourselves not just with the freedom from constraint good though that is not even with the freedom for making our lives as we would will them but the deepest freedom the most profound which is the freedom in small moments which are often the best places to practice it as well as the big moments should they come to align with that which is most human and indeed that which is the divine vision in us.